Today on the Smash Up Derby, we continue our conversation with Rosemary Foyer about her book, Radical Unionism in the Midwest. Her book is the story of the rise and the fall of William Setner and the United Electrical Workers Union in St. Louis in the 30s and 40s. If you missed last episode, episode 15, she tells us the story about the uh, Funston Nutpickers Strike, a general strike of nutpickers in St. Louis led by African-American women. It's a great episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to that one as well. But this episode will stand alone. In this episode, we pick up the story around 1935, before the CIO has been formed and before there's really any big organizing going on in St. Louis. And William Setner is working with a small group of dedicated activists to try to organize the electrical industry. And so at this point, where is um, Setner living? Is he still on in the Jewish neighborhood on the near north side, or is he somewhere else in St. Louis? Yeah, they, they had an apartment um, in the central part of the city. I think he moved from location to location with no... Mm -hmm. Uh, it, he he lived in near the railroad yards for a while. I know that mm -hmm. in a little tiny apartment above um, some railroad. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it um, it's it's in the heart of working class area. They organized some railroad workers um, in, into an industrial railroad union. So they were organizing just any kind of group of workers, um, and um, that was when they uh, a group of young people loosely associated and I say that very I'm gonna make that very clearly there were only a couple of them that were actually Communist Party members um, decided that the opportunity and the most important um, base for struggle was the electrical industry that it was important to organize electrical workers when you say electrical workers though you're what are they making motors for the electrical industry, okay. primarily, but also, you know, fans. So the reason they chose that industry, though, is because it was the most anti-union industry in the area. And it organized. It organized all the other anti-unionists into mm -hmm. a an anti-union force. So the bosses so were really organized in that industry. Right, saying. it had been, and it had been the reason that the unionism of a previous era had failed. They were the strategic, they looked at it from a historical basis, and they knew enough, having talked to people about the, um, the defeats of World War One During World War One. um, these uh, the electrical industry had organized as well as I mean, these this motor industry had organized, and they actually, in alliance with the state, um, the employers in St. Louis had killed the union movement. the The, the strategic um, signal of that was when the head of the um, um, war department strike negotiate or um, he, the guy who ended the strikes became the head of the employers association after the war basically uh, the government official had been a rat mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um that's so demoralizing they were determined they were like the Koch brothers mm -hmm. you know of, mm -hmm. of, of our era in, on that scale and 
and and you know they were small time they weren't like general electric these big fortis kind of companies right but they impacted it it was like those large industries saw the 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 genius i guess of letting these smaller the smaller industry disorganize everything and so they let them exist i mean ge and westinghouse could have wiped them out no problem you know but they they strategically allowed them to exist um and they agreed on price you know they agreed on uh, a price for the motor industry and uh, they, sort of a gentleman's agreement and and it all worked out well for everybody except for the workers. <laughs> the St. Louis companies were used to keep wages down throughout the country. Is that the yes. idea? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. By exactly. by setting the bottom essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, making sure that they 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 would fight against any kind of unionization. They I think we have to always keep in mind employers are always organizing and they. They organize themselves in that way. It it could change from time to time, but um, there was a you know there there was no doubt that G and Westing, especially Westinghouse, could have wiped out mm-hmm. that motor industry had they chosen to. So to to sort of come back to this group of young people, I think it's interesting, like that they chose to organize in the spot where it was hardest. Yes, right? this group of workers decided to confront power at its. Um, at its r- most raw, <laughs> uh, in its most raw dimensions, that you know, that knowing that this, you know, of course they didn't know that they would win, right? But they decided to make um, to make a, a stand and to attempt to concentrate. So there were only, you know, weren't, there weren't that many people in in the unemployed movement or the Communist Party or any of the radical elements of the of the labor movement at that time, and so you have to make a decision, right? Where are we going to go that uh, we will hunker down and make a stand, and that's where they did. And it wasn't that many people, but they decided to concentrate, which means they all decided we're going to get jobs in that in that industry. And so that's what did Setner do that as well? Um, Setner was, um, I guess, the strategic organizer of it, but no, he didn't get a job in the industry. Mm-hmm. He was too well known by then. Believe me, with him, oh. I mean, he was a. He was famous on both sides, right. you know. He couldn't hide, and that I mean, he could he could never he, hide his, he was, his his membership in the party either, because he had come out and after, you know already, um, you know the police forces had put him on the front page as being a communist. So mm-hmm. it would have been hard for him in at any point to say no, I'm not. Right, and he was he was uh, important in negotiating the nut picker strike too. So right. he was oh, on the front page of the paper. News. Yeah. He- headline news, right? And then the, you know people would out him regularly. So no, there was no way he'd get a job in any of those plants. Tell us what plants they were targeting, and and what year are we in now? This is before the CIO has been created, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah they, well, I should say that they also saw one of the things that they saw was that the uh, Century Electric, which was one of the plants, had gone on a strike, and it was it had organized under the International Association of Machinists, and it was a typical, you know, AFL kind of strike where <laughs> the guy um, basically goes in and organizes for the workers and he comes out and he tells them, well, I can't get much for you and you ought to go back to work. 
and that was a disappointment, but there were certainly a lot of people there in Century. But the other plants, the main other plants were uh, Emerson Electric and Wagner Electric. And Wagner was like an old Southern plant. They hired families, you know, and right. they, they almost took a textile workers, or textile plant approach to family-based uh, it's like, okay, we won't pay you a living wage, but we'll hire your whole family and you can go in here. And uh, that that created a, 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 you know, almost like a, a Southern. Uh, they did, and they also did hire more African Americans in that plant than any place else. At any rate, they had these, these were the three main plants, and uh, that was where they targeted. And do these you know the, where those plants are? I know Emerson is is on Locust, or, or was around, Locust was in about Locust, 21st right. or something. I think right. it's across the street. Century is right down the street from them. Okay. Um, Towards on further out. Washington Avenue. It's on, it was on Washington Avenue, right down on 13th and Washington, I believe. Okay. And a big old plant. They've actually rehabbed it at some fancy operation now, some company. Um, and and uh, Emerson is still there and able to be. You can actually see it. We, we did tours of it when I was uh, there. And we actually thought of making it into buying the the uh, building and making it into a workers theater where we could, because as you know, it was the second longest sit down in history. And at the time we could have had that, that um, building for about $5,000. So group yeah, of now, us it's thinking, a, now it's loft oh. apartments. Um, oh, now it's loft apartments. Yeah. It's beautiful. And somebody's making a fortune on it, yeah. but we still, I think there's a marker there. Um, that indicates it was the site of the sit-down strike. At any rate, uh, and then Wagner is on the north side, so that's quite a ways um, um, from the other two plants, and it was part of the Northwest Industrial District of St. Louis. Okay, so, so but Century and Emerson, um, both big plants, both, what, a, a thousand workers in each one, maybe, or not quite that big? Uh, like I said, well, it could be, uh, it, they, they just, it, it's what, uh, well, what a lot of companies think is ideal now. We'll just hire wh who we need for temporary work, and mm -hmm. um, you know the rest of you can, um, you, and then just lay them off. Right. And so there were there were as many as thirty five hundred workers at Century and Emerson when they got a job in. They'd hire in mass, and then they'd just lay people off. But yeah, about a thousand. Uh, each and then Wagner was the larger employer. It was about three thousand at the time. So, okay. talking about ten thousand people uh, in the entire industry of of St. Louis. But again, it, there is no major industry. This is a very diverse um, working class uh, community. A diverse kinds of jobs, um, and so it, it's very much like a lot of cities today, where there's no major industry because. Um, well, now it's because of a lot of job, <laughs> you know, job losses. But, um, you know, so the ideal of the 1930s or the way that a lot of people think the 1930s uh, mass organization happens isn't the way it happens in St. Louis, where you get, you know, Ford workers join and all of a sudden you have 40,000 people <laughs> in your ranks. Mm -hmm. There is nothing like that. It's hard organizing in in this period and it's little plants small groups of workers comparatively so what happens in the electrical in in emerson century and wagner where where are they stronger or where do they where do they have success first it, century seems to be the the um major base and then 
<laughs> the company simply fires all the major activists. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of fear induced from that. Um, and and then the next uh, the next group of workers that they're really concentrating on is an Emerson, uh, Emerson Electric. It isn't like a lot of the other sit-downs where they're just um, building a cadre of leaders over the course of, I would say, more than six months, right? Um, uh, some of them, they're, they're radicalized. They're getting them involved in what was um, the unemployed movement was the American Workers Union. The same kind of strategy as what had been used at Funston, where they're getting people to commit to the union and getting them involved in unemployed struggles. And the unemployed movement is occupying City Hall, <laughs> doing an mm-hmm. occupation, and uh, that gives people some skills. And so the, um, you know, th- th- there's not a separation there between community-based struggle and plant-based struggle. I think that's an important factor. And you have some people who are who are really um, um, learning. Uh, to organize themselves and becoming leaders themselves in those other um, campaigns. You know, the other thing that is happening is the, um, you know, the nationwide, like you can't underestimate the nationwide sit-down movement Mm. uh, that's going on. And I really, you know, obviously that is um, the the auto workers, their sit-down in late 1936 and that victory is spurring people to think it's it's really possible. But I have to emphasize that when, just as with Funston, when the uh, Emerson workers launch what becomes the second longest sit-down strike, in United States history, it's done with the same kind of coalition. I mean, employers are outraged because, you know, the workers walk out, but on the outside, their picket lines are staffed by young people who don't have anything to do with that picket line, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, with that plant. It's like a community coalition coming together that's been organized under the radar for quite a long time. The other thing that happens that makes that sit-down possible and, and respected is the is that the police respect the picket line by uh, not uh, clubbing people. And that had been, certainly been the case up until that point. And, it, and that had to do with a remarkable incident in the auto plants of St. Louis where the son of a policeman got his eyes gouged out by a thug in the plant. And, uh, it, you know, just made him open to allowing workers to control their own picket line. When they, these workers go on strike, Sentner negotiates with the son, with the vice, vice chair of the police department to let them ensure peace. And that's a remarkable moment, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and using his sons, knowing about this from the auto workers and using his sons, um, the harm that came to him as an auto worker to um, plead with him to allow them to police their own picket line outside the plant. So there's no attempt, at least for a short time, to rush to the doors and to give Emerson what it wants, which is the evacuation of the workers from that plant. So um, so this is following on um, the auto worker strikes. The Emerson sit-down strike, when does it occur? Um April of 1936, last uh, 53 days 
And uh, it's just all the young people, they, they go, march up to the foreman, the, the people in the plant, they march up to the foreman and the, the, the department supervisors and tell them that they're, they must, that, that, you know, physically escort them to the door and take over the plant. It's as, as straightforward as that. Mm-hmm. We're taking this over this. Um, and um, they basically keep everybody in the plant who's young enough. Of course, it's, it's, uh, they don't allow mixed groups. So they uh, ask the women to leave and to be on the outside. And uh, it's all men who stay on the inside. They don't want any charges that there's sexual alliance mm-hmm. liaisons going on, all of that. But would there have been African American workers in the plant, or some African Americans? Um, you know, it, it was a marginal part of the Emerson plant. They okay. um, they would hire them as a, kind of a reserve labor force before the union period. Almost like temporary workers or something, yeah. which you know, mm-hmm. frankly, is not that different than the way. It works today, but... Um. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the sit-down strike goes on for 53 days, and how is it resolved? It's it's a victory in the sense that they're recognized, and they do win a small number of rights and uh, recognition and wage increase. It's not like a major sea change of conditions. It's a c- incredibly important to recognize that union recognition was a big deal for Emerson, since Emerson was the heart of what was called the National Metal Trades Association, which was by then the organizing unit of the employers. So this was the thug. You know, these were the thugs and the people who hired spies and so forth to to uh, keep unions from organizing, you know, at the end of the day, the workers felt that they had won, that recognition was the start of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, in the heart of that sit-down strike, they are organizing about who's going, you know, who's going to be the shop stewards. And these people become uh, shop stewards. They, they have, um, you know, one for every 10 workers at, at the beginning, you know, one representative. And that is what amazes the employers when they come back is that there is a policing of the plant that makes things remarkably better for workers and uh, makes it seem like communism has come mm-hmm. <laughs> to the employers like this is this is a soviet you know being organized they 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 are so determined to kill the union um you know, from that point on, because they they see what it means and the they've daily. Just, they've the lost plan. control of the shop floor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That um, you know, Sentner says it equips at one point. If the workers want to paint this, you know, plant red or something or green, they're going to get to do it. Mm-hmm. That they that that shop steward system was going to be the way that they were going to win more rights. And so that was the battle, was against the shop steward system. And, um, you know, but Sentner made it very clear that he wanted to address the, I mean, the low-paid workers in that plant the most, that the union would be the force for, you know, addressing issues that were um, not discussed in, in the past, which is in the day-to-day life where we're going to accept that women get, paid so little that they have you know they have absolute they're they're not making a living wage he brought that up right away 
and and the company just couldn't fathom that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, of course women would get lower pay. And so by the time they're doing the sit-down strike, are they uh, affiliated with the United Electrical Workers Union? This group of young workers um, reaches out. It's not the UE reaching out to them. They reach out to the UE after they're already organizing and say, uh, and, and ask to be affiliated and to get some pay. They're like, you know, we're all getting fired and we want to keep organizing. We'd really like to uh, ask you to pay us to be organizers. And the first person they put on is, um, is Sentner. And, 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 to that, to and that, that happens in the run-up to the Emerson uh, yes. sit-down strike. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have to say that you know this is the richest body of uh, research materials you could ever ask because the UE really makes uh, Sentner report the day-to-day workings. And so for me, as a researcher, I just found um, his excruciatingly detailed notes fascinating mm. about how this happened. Um, the other is they, they hire um, they hire Henry Fearing, uh, and he has to make these reports about Century Electric, and his detailed notes as well as you know I had an oral history interview with him, and he said you know the most important thing was to overcome the fear, because once that happened, people who you thought would always be company union like they had a each of these plants had a company union that was called the employee representation plan and you would think that these people who were in that and maybe president of the employee of the company union would never turn tide and he said you know some of them became the most radical people so they had made their bed with the company union because they thought it was the best they could do but they weren't defined by it and I always um, re- note that, you know, that in, he said if you if you create the conditions in which pe- you can eliminate some of the fear, people surprise you sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you never give up. As an organizer, he said that really taught him never to give up on, on someone or to suggest that where they were was always where they would be. You know, that's... Um, you know, that was mirrored. They, they had people who, the companies looked at them and they thought they were reliable company people. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they found them on the picket line. And they're like, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. You know, just yesterday they were in this meeting as a representative of the company union and now they're with the CIO. The UE CIO. Because the UE, for people who don't know, was one of the, you know, became a, a part, a leading part of the CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations. Uh, the UE had only been around for a year or so. Yeah, 1936. They, I think their first convention was 1936. Yeah. So. so they immediately, I mean, in other words, the unions barely founded and they're already affiliating with, the, you know, these folks in St. Louis and... Mm-hmm. Well, the folks in St. Louis are, are are finding out about them and saying, you know, hey, what about us? Can uh-huh. we be part of this? It was it was not, you know, a centralized campaign. It was I think people think of the CIO as this highly organized instrument of John L. Lewis, or at least sometimes if people know some of the history, we think of the the you know what what's called Fordism, which is these mass factories, and then all that's the great achievement. And GE goes with the union, and GM goes with the union, and Ford finally gets organized. But I see what happens in the 1930s is very different than those historians who 
make that the central story because it is a community by community kind of organizing that comes out of a strategic group of workers in each place, whether in Detroit or St. Louis or Cincinnati or elsewhere, you know, becoming organized and then uh, that creates the CIO. And there's always these tensions, you know, I don't think that you, it's not that I don't think national unions were important. They obviously were, but they can't happen unless people feel, uh, unless communities are coming together in support of them. And that is what is happening in this case. So did the uh, was the Emerson a local, the first UE local in St. Louis? or? Yeah. They- it was so that, Emerson. That. Well, they all kind of came at the same time because what happens is, um, you know, there's a cascade of um, of colonizing, I guess, if you call it, or what we call now seeding of these plants, mm-hmm. and then um, you so know, some plants call, hope. Out. They call it salting now. Our, our one of our just recent episodes was on two young people yes, who are salting right, right now. So. Yeah, salting. Exactly. Um, and that, that's an old term, too. I, some, here, sometimes we call it seeding. Um, so, you know, you're planting the seeds or you're uh, co- in, in this in this area, it was called colonizing. You know, one by one, they fall. And I think the order is uh, Emerson, Century and Wagner mm-hmm. in that order. And then a whole bunch of other little like there's Superior Electric in St. Louis. Um, they begin um, to basically um, become organized but the companies haven't given up there's never Mm -hmm. a time when they just you know there is never a time really that these companies conceded to unionization Mm -hmm. (laughs) um you know even when there seems to be a rapprochement um especially with emerson with the symington leadership later on it's under certain conditions right so um you know, we have this idea, uh, at least in some circles, that there was a labor management piece for a while, but not on the part of empl- most of these employers. They were always looking for ways, avenues to overcome um, the uh, the victory of, of these unions, of this union in, in that area. So, so by ni- the end of 1936, um, there's the UE district there has got at least these big three plants, right? Emerson, Century, and Wagner. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to organize smaller plants in the area. And and by this and point... And they could have become... They could have organized... I mean, people were... People in that community in St. Louis from Shoe Warehouse... Um, the furniture companies that there were there were clerks there were there were waitresses that wanted to get into the UE mm-hmm. but the structure of the CIO prevented that so this it's interesting because the CIO kind of replicated some of the you know industry-based strictures that uh, depleted you know the the ability of uh, of this union to become the union and it was i mean i'm sure that was the most exciting time of their lives i mean bob logston who was um who became who was sent the vice president became the vice president of the district and such a strategic organizer himself said you know it's good we got 
things organized as much as we did in that period because the employers took the first opportunity to um, come back with massive amount of repression. You know, they had at least some or plants organized before the Great Recession of the late 1930s happened, and there was a, a massive backlash. So how many... Um how many members does the United Electric Workers end up having after, what, 1938, 1939, before the backlash really comes? I think uh, they probably had about 4,500 4, workers at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, again, l- largely concentrated in those several main plants. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and it was not, so, you know, you had some large, the larger auto plants, it was probably the, the second largest union. It becomes the biggest union during World War II, and a massive amount of workers then, mm-hmm. you know, 25,000 compared to this. So, you know, the wartime is, is very different from this period. There's a lot of, uh, with the recession, there's just massive layoffs and there aren't very many people working. So I think by the beginning of, ni- or the end of 1939, it was 10,000 workers. So, you know, it's up and down, up and down, depending on the economic fortunes. This is the Great Depression, remember? So mm-hmm. a lot of people were unemployed and that's what they did, by the way. I mean, how do they keep themselves together in those hard times is that, they are a union that's going right and, and you know, demonstrating um, the same kind of strategies that had been employed in the early 1930s. When the workers get employed, they go to the relief offices and they uh, become involved in the unemployed movement um, again. And so that's, uh, that really seals the loyalty of a lot of workers. When they come back, they know that they got bread on the table because the union was there. And that, uh, that is a force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, so I mean, they really kept, uh, kept members organized even when they were laid off. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that was, and in fact, uh, I think some of them took uh, WPA jobs, and some of their jobs were um, effectively um, being organized to organize them and so they take jobs in the WPA and uh, there was some support from the WPA even for this you know there was again there's this growing um, popular front and that that meant that some of those um, Fearing for instance Henry Fearing got a job in as an educator right Mm -hmm. and he was teaching some kind of class but he said in effect I was able to organize people as I was educating I was doing some kind of class and really I was uh, on the side, most of my hours were spent organizing in the unemployed movement while supposedly teaching. <laughs> so, so it was, you know, it was, um, you know, they were, they were hiring I- into these kind of funny um, welfare programs, you know. So that that was interesting. I think there's a lot of fluidity there. Anyway, um, well, your, your book is called radical unionism in the Midwest. Why? I mean, what is it that distinguishes what Setner built there compared to, I mean, the auto workers had won big strikes there as well. I assume the steel workers did to some extent as well. Although I think steel was probably bigger in like Granite city, I guess, across the river there. You know, one of the reasons I chose to to call it radical unionism is because of the 
um, historiography about radicals in unions, including there's a book by Ron Schatz on the United on the United Electrical Workers Union, and, and there's this notion that the union movement sucked up people and they couldn't be radical. They that the trade union trade unions would be trade unions and that they were just that. You know that any radical would just have to um, basically um, become a basic, pure and simple trade unionist. Still, you still hear this from people yes, as well. That so. you know that 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 there isn't any option about how you can organize that the um, there. David Brody put it that you know they were un, that radicals were unable to act other than as essentially conventional trade unionist, and as I said, you know when I was doing this and I was looking at all the CIO, it was like, well, this is nonsense. There was a very great difference between the UE and any um, other union, but can you build a force for social transformation, right? And or do you just think of this as a contract in an end of itself? So what I mean by radical unionism is a, is going to the roots of the problem. Can you build a union that addresses the power structures and makes for radical changes that allows workers to build their own power? And that is what this group of workers thought about. And that is why they, they gave a a lot of thought to how you build solidarity. They were constantly thinking of that and, and what it meant to be um, in the community, not just have a resource from the community come to your picket line, but really be embedded in the community and transform the basis of power in that community. So, so how would they do that? What were well, the... One, yeah, for one thing is you build... Um, your leadership base from the working class, um, and you strategically organize. One, one small, well, not small, one really major point of difference to show you the distinction um, is when the, United, when the United Electrical Workers in St. Louis decided that they were going to go after organizing the small arms plant in the wake of World War II, you know, um, there was the small arms plant was the biggest, one of the biggest plants. And the UAW, by their craft designation or, you know, industry designation, should have had claim to those workers. And the UAW looked at him and said, yeah, you know, they're going to be, it's going to be a short-term thing after the war is over. This plant's going to become uh, dismantled and you know, why should we go and take all the resources and organize this plan because it's not going to be there after the war, so who cares? Plus, it's mostly women who are there, and they're just going to go back into the home. But the UE, from a radical perspective, thought of it in a very different way and committed to organizing that plant. They thought, here is this young, white and black, predominantly female working class base uh, which with which we will build a new leadership for a new era. Um, whether or not they stay with us, they will build working class power and, by their experience in our union. And so it wasn't just looking at their bottom line, but looking at working class power. Um, and so I, I um, you know, and I, I think that was confirmed by a number of people um, to who I interviewed that this was 
the kind of uh, decision that would have made distinguish the UE from every other CIO union. That's the way they train themselves to think. And it came out of um, thinking constantly about political economy, really, about the connection between political power and economic power, between community um, and what a union can do to transform a community um, are the base of power in a community and in a nation. So thinking about dismantling the forces of power at the elite level, you know, how do you do that and how do you get working class people to join in that project? And so the uh, small arms campaign, if I remember right, it was out by the airport, first of all. Yes. Is that right? Mm, good fellow. On Goodfellow, we're, we're gonna have to put a map of St. Louis on the up on the website. Yeah, for, right, right. <laughs> for those of you who've never been to St. Louis, um, so uh, yeah, so it's out by the airport, and so they're successful in organizing this plant. Is that that's right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, and it, it was. It almost took them three years. So the it just is an amazing um, involvement of African American and women. I mean, you know, they they do all sorts of. Um, um, strategic actions culturally, you know, or activities culturally and, and elsewhere to to become a movement. Mm-hmm. And I um, I think that is, and that's always also why they became the largest union. There were people who, um, you know, who just really uh, thought that this was the force. There was a there was a book that was written during the war that you know a novelist in St. Louis used um, used this as um, you know, it's almost a proletarian novel during the nineteen uh, from the nineteen forties of how this young African American maid becomes a union organizer, um, and it's called uh, Mrs. Mrs. Honey, Mrs. Um, Palmer's Honey. But um, you know, it just kind of shows you the kind of cultural change that they were that they were um, involved in. They also, by the way, their goal was to become you know, a force for the African-American community. So this was a way of getting a base. And Sentner and Logston and, um, you know, they began to strategically train um, organizers. They are the first uh, UE uh, district to hire an African-American organizer. So, you know, they're they're thinking along those lines of, of first of all, opening jobs they really make a campaign to open jobs to African-Americans and put their union on the line to do that. Do you um, have an example of that that you can think of, of where that happened? Well, the, um, I mean, you know, at Emerson, there's a white strike or the white, white workers go on strike against opening up those jobs and the union, um, you know, fights and, and basically says, we will not protect you in this strike mm-hmm. <laughs> against, um, um, against this, um, the opening of these jobs to African Americans, and so they put the union front and center on that. And um, you know, they they, they do hire these um, African American organizers who become um, very very important to the um, to the union and in think, the aftermath. I think in your book you talk a little bit about uh, union social events having integrated union social yes. events, and yeah. that would have been incredibly unique for a union yeah when you think about what is happening to the uaw at that time where they are still 
they still haven't in the UAW gotten rid of this separate seniority list. UE had gotten rid of those separate seniority lists for black and white well before the UAW did. So it was possible to confront it. It's just that the UAW had not chosen mm-hmm. to do that, whereas uh, the, uh, the UE did. So I don't know if people know that, but there used to be that kind of, uh, you know, they had a female seniority list and then a, um, so it was called colored or Negro mm-hmm. uh, seniority list. And uh, they broke that down they in, in all their factories during this time. They did things, I mean, it was a, an amazing accomplishment. They got maternity leave <laughs> during this period in a number of plants. And uh, so that women wouldn't lose their seniority, um, that what? kind of that. So they were very attentive. I mean, it was um, it was very clear they they hired they hired um, um, women organizers in the in before 1939 uh, and and made sure that they, you know, a small detail got the same pay. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, that, that was in the records of the union that uh, even in the UE, you know, women got less pay than men. Um, but uh, Sentner made sure that they got the same pay. So Sentner then is involved in several campaigns outside of St. Louis as well. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the workers at uh, Maytag organized themselves effectively. Robert Logston, from, uh, who's he's, he's in the, it's kind of a radicalized um um, young man from southern Illinois who comes into St. Louis and he's involved in the unemployed struggles. He's a member of the Socialist Party and he he becomes um, just drawn into the this circle of organizers and then ends up being elected vice president of the district. He, he told me he went to Maytag. He said, oh, this was a situation where really they were organizing themselves and uh, and it was so easy to sign people up. But this is um, a major victory, and it extends the district first to Iowa. Mm-hmm. So people may think of Iowa as cornfields, but there are, it's a manufacturing, is manufacturing. And, uh, you know, in, in this case, it's Newton, Iowa, which is a small, the uh, Maytag washing machine and Maytag appliance manufacturing area in this um small town near um about 100 miles from des moines you guys have to help me yeah Yeah, it's it's right in between des moines and iowa city so yeah 60 miles um anyway so that comes on board then they have all sorts of smaller companies coming on board in st louis but the main area that they strategically try to organize is um in evansville indiana um, and there they are doing that because they conf- they want to um, confront another major arm of power in the employers. It's the Bakasiri plant. Yeah, Bakasiri, and um, this becomes uh, <laughs> their Waterloo, so to speak. They they think it's going to be easy, and uh, they send in a couple organizers, and it it just turns into a complete. A complete disaster. He, they go into Evansville and try to organize these repressive, uh, almost in a, it's almost a police state union, or a police state in these uh, areas that he's trying to unionize, and they get clobbered, right? Mm-hmm. But I think um, rather than dwell on those defeats, 
the important thing that happens in that moment is they hunker down. <laughs> they basically say, okay, we got clobbered because we weren't based in these communities. And, and so we have to build that for the future. And it turns out that, you know, it takes them from 1937 when they first start going into Evansville until 1947. It's a 10-year campaign that it takes them to win Evansville. And when they win it, they win it big. Join us for our next episode of the Smash Up Derby. We're going to continue the story of Osiris Erie and the organizing of Evansville, Indiana. We continue our conversation with Rosemary about the rise and fall of the Electrical Workers Union in St. Louis and its leader, William Setner. We hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Smash Up Derby, the podcast about working class politics. If you like what you hear, head over to our website, smashuppodcast.com. There's links to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And uh, sign up for our email list, follow us on Twitter, and uh, there's also an ask or comment section if you've got questions or comments. Uh, you can also follow us or tweet at us on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>